You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Hey, yo, we are back. Uh, We just got home from a European tour that could not have gone much better. It was fucking awesome. It's always a warm, romantic little uh, nip into work when we go over there. Uh, We saw so many friends and played some great fucking shows. Really took advantage of the off days this time. Went to some uh, adventures, the old Angel of the North. Um, Oxford in particular was incredible. I'd never been there before. Uh, One thing that caught me completely off guard was that there's not much light pollution. So you're walking around this thousand-year-old city with a bunch of modern um, buildings in it as well, kind of peppered throughout, but you can see the stars the entire time, and it's really just kind of a kind of a trippy, trippy, trippy place. It was great. Uh, a little bit of maintenance. Oh, I put out a call a while ago for assistance in producing the podcast. Um, the response was overwhelming, and I can't thank you guys enough for those that emailed me. I'm trying to hire somebody to help chop this fucker up and make it nice. Um, actually, not, not even chop it up, just compile it and make it sound nice. I could do it, but I just don't really feel like it anymore. Uh, Also looking for someone to help me with social media and eventually video. I really want to pay them, so if you know someone who would be interested or you are interested in sponsoring the podcast, hit me up uh, at tom at futurefriday.net. So this episode is a particularly special one in that it encompasses my original intentions for the podcast, which is to share some of the conversations I've been fortunate enough to have with people that I would never have met if it wasn't for this this, um, wild-ass band journey that I've been on. So many wonderful and interesting people have floated in and out of my life in bars and backstage tents and German fields and truck stops and hotel lobbies and, and all those kinds of places, and I really wanted to capture that curiosity and that weird kind of um, convergence of pathways that happens with this. And today I talked to somebody that I met on tour, Jack Kohenar, music fan, punk rocker, retired Air Force Master Sergeant, a former nuke guarder, a European history expert, and mental health advocate. Uh, Jack gave me a challenge coin that I still keep in my leather jacket in the same pocket all these years later. It was incredible to talk to him, very insightful. We had a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it, and I cannot wait to talk to Jack again. Uh, and if it's cool with you, I'll just uh, kind of dive right in. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Hey, Jack, thanks. Uh, oh, first, before we start, uh, I have to ask you the correct pronunciation of your last name. Cohenar. That's what I, All right, cool, cool. I Googled it, and other people with the same last name. I had to like, a little spell it out. Yep. I'll just write it down real quick. Cohenar. Looks harder than it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is it French? Yeah, it is. My family's from the Alsace region of Fr- France. I can trace my heritage back there, like the 1500s. No shit. Yeah, <laughs> they, were Anna, they were they were Anabaptists, man, and so they were wow. like they left that part of the world and came to the states, like in the 1600s, fleeing religious persecution. So, yeah, and that's exactly. so, so many interests. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so funny. I was thinking a lot about that when I was writing some of this stuff out and thinking about the conversation that, you know, how our country was formed, you know, and people, I don't think a lot of people realize that, you know, that most people, 
uh, don't realize we've only had one Catholic president in the history of the nation, man. Well, and, JFK, and, isn't it? Yeah, correct. And and maybe in some ways that's a little bit by design because we were, you know, founded by Protestants, people that were leaving the Catholic Church. And so kind of interesting. I don't think enough Americans understand that. Yeah, totally. Like how we were founded. I will tell you that a lot of uh, anyone uh, of the of the of the like Irish Catholic upbringing in the Northeast of the United States knows that JFK was the uh, only Catholic <laughs> yeah. president because there's a picture of him in every kitchen in, in Scranton, I think. Well, when I was I was a kid, when I first came in the military, I was so naive when I came in. I mean, I, I wasn't raised in the church or anything like that. And growing up in Southern California, any Catholic services, they're in Spanish, man. And yeah, I had been to sense. Catholic a couple of times as a kid with friends, of, Hispanic friends of mine. And so, like, my roommate, when I was in uh, tech training, like, is where you learn your job after you get out of boot camp, he was going to Catholic Mass one Sunday and invited me, and I'm like, dude, I— I don't speak Spanish, man. I won't even know what they're saying. He's like, what are you talking about? I'm... He was like from Little Rock, Arkansas. And I was so naive. I, I knew so little about the world that I literally thought Catholicism was like a Spanish religion. Had no idea. That's amazing. But, I can totally see why you think that in Southern California as well. It's funny that you mentioned that, Maya, that the Catholic church that I grew up going to um, was actually converted to a Spanish-speaking uh, Catholic church. Um, as the demographics of, of the area that I grew up in were changing. So. Makes sense. It's yeah, interesting totally. stuff. So. Yeah. But, dude, you mentioned, so growing up in Southern California, I got on my list here, I got to talk to you about it. You grew up in the quintessential, like, 90s, <laughs> 90s punk rock ska scene and location, like the, the, the one that, you know, we'll hopefully remember for, for, for years on end, and that's kind of just be the whole framing of it. What was, what was that like? It I, you know, I took it for granted a lot because there was tons. So I grew up in Victorville, and so that's about 20 miles from San Bernardino, Inland Empire, which really at that time was like a mecca for punk rock. I mean, and ska for that matter. And there was tons of all ages venues down there because you had a couple of different college campuses, and they were obviously they were trying to cater to the entire collegiate demographic there. And so. It wasn't abnormal for me, you know, at 16 or 17 to be going to see, you know, strung out on a Wednesday night. And that was just, well, that was just what you did, you know. And I, I, uh, I remember seeing Lagwagon at a little tiny pool hall in Victorville or in Hysteria, a little town next to Victorville. And uh, that was just what it was. I didn't realize it wasn't like that for other people in other places. And I, uh, and I really didn't even understand like the significance of independent music or small labels and things like that. I, we had a local label there called Dr. Strange records. And I mean, you name like any of your early seminal punk bands from face to face, gutter mouth, voodoo glow skulls, all these guys, rhythm collision, were all on that label. And so we, of course, you know, I bought up about everything they released. Um, I was I got really big into a ska band called Skankin' Pickle. Oh man, that was one and, of the first uh, T-shirts I ever bought in my life was a Skankin' P- Pickle T-shirt that I uh, I think I got the cash, went into the post office, got a money order, and sent it into uh, Interpunk.com so that I can I get one sent to me. 
There uh, you go. I love that band, dude. So good. That's and that's so funny. We actually looked at you know your guys' uh, culture and scene. I came about a little bit later, maybe almost exactly ten years later, or a little bit less than that. Mm-hmm. But we looked at all of those old VHSs that we get off eBay, skateboard magazines, and we would mm-hmm. copy the fashion from yep. uh, Southern California punk and ska. There you go. We would go to the um, was... Army Surplus store, get Dickies, you know, cut them so that they were like <laughs> flood pants, wear high striped yep. socks. Yeah, it was uh, amazing. That was pretty much my, uh, that was part of what got me really big into punk at that time was, so my hometown band is face to face and I'm still really close with those guys. I've been a fan of their band for, I don't know, 27, 28 years. Um, and at that time, like what I knew punk rock to be was, you know, guys with big mohawks and things like that. And and, 77, you know, yeah, that, and that's what I thought it was. And I had no idea. And we really didn't have any punk kids at our school, you know? And I remember kids passing around face to face's first album. Don't turn away the tape for that. And, uh, thinking it was just an incredible album. And I had seen them, uh, at a show, maybe a, I don't know, six months down the line. And where I grew up was kind of an area where I grew up at the base of, of a mountain basically. And if you live down in the desert where I lived, then you were probably poor and you know, that kind of thing. And you lived in a trailer. And if you lived up on the mountain, you probably lived, you know, up next to the ski resort and just quite literally looking down on everyone. Exactly. And that was, so it was really difficult trying to figure out how, how do you fit in? You know, we weren't, my parents were pretty poor and you know, I never really figured out exactly where I belonged at that point. And then I remember seeing face to face the first time. And these guys are up there with like jean shorts and t-shirts and tube socks, the same crap I was wearing because that's what I could afford to wear or my parents could afford to clothe me in. And I'm like, what the heck, man, these guys don't, these guys look like me up there and they're playing this music that I like. And I was hooked, man, at that point. And, uh, I've been a, a huge, huge, huge fan of them since those days. So, uh, I guess for me, punk kind of became my uh, place where I figured I found where I kind of belonged because I think anybody can belong as as long as you're open minded. Totally. I think uh, I've the story was very similar to me in that you were able to look at other people, find a group to belong in. You know, there's that whole part where you're in your adolescence, you're kind of everyone's lost and, and goofy and awkward. Um, this morning, actually, I just got reminded I went to a, a, a climbing gym and it was full of teenagers that were doing like a, a, a school field trip and just kind of like listening to them talk to each other and interact. You just remember, holy shit, they have no idea who they are and they're super awkward and it's really, mm-hmm. it's really funny. Sprinkle them with those insights and stuff. But yeah, back to the punk rock thing. You're, you're looking, uh, uh, I can follow this fashion and I can do this thing that I can belong to uh, with other people. But there is that undercurrent of... Um, of uh, substance to it you know the idea that that energy that's there um quite literally in the in the sense that you're playing really loud music and it feels powerful mm. and it's explosive but also that the things that people are singing about and doing are are, are kind of an introduction to a um mm-hmm. a, or a manifestation of a moral compass you know you're like kind of uh reverting to that and i think that's a, a pretty cool thing that's awesome that that's how you found it yeah it's, it's interesting you note that because I, I've always felt like uh, I'm probably the worst punk rock fan ever because I have a lot of – I have kind of a, a limited purview or a limited scope of bands and styles I like. And so 
like first and foremost, I don't like any bands with like get ups or sticks at all. I just <laughs> I don't care for that. Yeah. And I don't like and I didn't like a lot of the bands growing up because they were singing about, you know, ball sweat and stupid shit like that. <laughs> very, and I very needed, adolescent. Yeah. And I just I always needed <laughs> punk rock with, with some substance. And so like my brother and I, he's only a year younger than me. We're kind of uh, 13 months apart. And he was really big into gutter mouth and I was really big into face to face. And I'm like, I could never get into gutter mouth because they just didn't sing about anything that resonated with me. And I, I think that's why, you know, face to face has been really important to me. And then of course the Menzingers as well, because there's, there's lyrics that are meaningful that lead you to think and learn and grow. And, and I'm not going to learn and grow from, you know, the next gutter mouth record. And I know there's probably people who love them and that's great. That's their band. Everybody has, has bands that they love and they don't. So, uh, but I guess that kind of maybe the only negative to that is it resigns me to maybe not exploring other bands that I might really enjoy their music or whatever, and maybe being uh, res- restricting who I listen to. Yeah. Th- thanks for saying that about uh, about us, man. That's awesome. Um, but yeah, it just like totally, if you take a step back and look at the uh, in like a, a a bigger worldly sense, the difference between Guttermouth and face-to-face, while it is, you know, rigid and, and vast to, to you and I, to looking back on it, you're like, all right, well, these are these bands that are around in these eras that released records on these record labels, so it all kind of is such, uh, uh, yeah. it, you know, very common-looking thing, but we could find these these tight differences to it. And like you said, you could resign you to not getting too crazy in it. But at the same time, some people just know what you like, man. Like my, uh, my brother, mm-hmm. whom I love to yeah. death and is one of my favorite people in the entire world, we always bust him because... He is open to new music and he always listens to new shit, just like you're saying with your brother. Uh, and he's only, you know, two or three years, or he's like three years younger than me. Uh, he has some bands from high school that he liked and he will still listen to them, like at his bachelor party, his wedding. <laughs> he had this playlist that is so fucking good. And I always listen to it when I'm at the gym and shit. And he's just uh, found that shit and stuck with it. And I, I love that so much. It's funny, man. I, uh, you know, I have most of my left arm here done with band stuff. You know, I've got some face-to-face stuff, Menzinger stuff, of course. And and I, I work with people, and I think that – and this is something that therapy has helped me out a lot with and maybe interesting subject, but, like, people probably think I'm crazy there, and I think they do think I'm crazy when I come in with a new band tattoo. And <laughs> But for me, I – for me, it's the polar opposite is if you can't understand why I would have a band that I love so much tattooed on me, you probably wouldn't be able to understand me Yeah, because music is really that important to my life that, I, yeah, it lasts forever. And that's exactly what I want it to do. I mean, I am so yeah. call me. You know, I'm I glad mean, uh, most people. You... Oh, sorry to cut you off, man. I was saying... oh, go ahead. No, I was I'm really glad that you brought up therapy. You used, um, at the plural there, you said they and we. Are you talking about like a, a group therapy kind of situation or is uh No, I, I'm doing – so I, I've been – If you're cool with talking about it, I think maybe you should give the caveat no, no, of like hey. uh, I'm all about normalizing um, the mental health treatment and uh, uh, self-betterment um, as much as I could, especially in the last couple of years of my life. So. It's funny. It's uh... – I saw during my 22 years in the the military, like the attitudes in the military about therapy changed drastically. You know, from when I was first a young guy coming in, you would never want to tell anybody. And it would probably, you know, it might keep you from being able to even do what you 
did for a living in the military because your reliability to do something could have been jeopardized. Like I guarded nuclear missiles my first 10 years of my career. I mean, you don't want to put somebody with significant mental health issues. They're holding a rifle in front of a nuclear missile. And so, uh, but I found as I got to the latter part of my career that the you know, the air force in general had, uh, changed their attitudes about it significantly a big cultural shift where i was comfortable finally getting some help um but i what i kind of found in the military while i was still in was it was more of the hey we're gonna see you're gonna see this psychiatrist they're gonna talk to you once a month and they're gonna give you some medication and i was basically on that path for several years or so and then uh you know i got i once i retired i was still doing kind of that same methodology and i just wanted to know is there something more to it you know than just talking to a person an hour every couple months and getting your medication refilled and so i started doing some psychotherapy uh last year and it it has been really groundbreaking for me. Um, That's incredible. I'm so happy to hear that yeah. for you. Yeah, it's, it, it really has been good, and it's been just wonderful, man, having that sounding board. So yeah, I yeah. wish I would have done it earlier. Right? Well, I mean, hey, you're doing it now, which is, is, is just you know, that's incredible. <laughs> uh, maybe we could uh, let everybody know that you did. So you, you were in the Air Force for 22 years. That's how we met, actually. We kind of went yeah, on a couple tangents, sure. which I, I love. That's like the name of my game. <laughs> but um, we met. So the whole reason I wanted to do this podcast uh, is because I've had so many conversations, like the conversations I've had with you in the past, like with people that I I would never have met if I wasn't in a touring band. I get to meet so many people, whether it's um, the unique circumstances that we find ourselves in, the fact that we put ourselves out there, but it, or some kind of whatever that draws um, us together. I get to meet people like you, and I'm uh, really happy that I got to meet you and hear your story. Um, so you were in the Air Force for 22 years. Well, I should say, let's just tell that when I first met you, you gave me uh, a challenge coin, uh, which I still keep <laughs> in the same pocket of the same jacket. Uh, and I have like a mini nice. superstition where I don't like to take it out, but it's, uh, it's, it's right there and it's stuck yeah. there and it's pretty fucking sick looking because it has, uh, um, the, you know, the spy side, spy on one uh-huh. side and the thing. Yeah. Incredible. Why don't you got maybe, I guess just tell me about uh, challenge coin or let everybody know what exactly that is. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of a, a longstanding tradition in the military that involves that drinking culture, uh, that, yeah, <laughs> when you go to different schools, or sometimes for like uh, uh, for an attaboy, basically, you will be receive a coin from like somebody higher ranking than you, kind of thing. And all military people should have a coin in their pocket at all times. And if you're ever somebody slaps a coin down, whether it's you know walks by your desk at work and slaps a coin down, and you can't produce one, then you owe them a drink. Amazing. And, and so I. When I first deployed to Korea in 2012, I was in like an indoctrination course there where we were just getting spun up on our wartime duties and stuff. And we had got back from like a five mile run and like we were in like a communal shower in the, in the bar- or in the place where I worked. And somebody slung a coin in there where there's like 10 guys taking showers. And of course, <laughs> unless you got one like stuck up an orifice, you're not producing a coin. So That's needless to good. say, a lot of us were buying uh, drinks that evening. But uh, That was going to be my next question is what's stopping from the uh, uh, highest ranking or most, you know, so that's based off of rank or it's based off of like uh, interest or can you get into a debate over whose challenge coin is, is, is better? 
It doesn't necessarily. It's you not just about have to have it's just, a coin. You just have to have a coin. Ah, it has to okay, have, cool, cool. It has to have military significance. You can't pull like a half dollar out or something. Uh, now there is a lot of uh, heraldry with coins, like. Um, I don't know. Maybe you meet the Secretary of Defense and you give them a briefing. Sometimes they'll give you a coin. And so people Whoa, usually really? have their coins. Oh, yeah, for sure. The president will give out coins. They have coins as well. Damn. And uh, so, like, if you have a coin of that magnitude, people will have, like, a little rack on their desk usually. And it'll have, like, their coins in there. They'll display the ones that they're most proud of. And they're always – like, people will come by my office now – like, and I work with all civilians and they'll come by and they'll be like, what is the significance of these? And I'm like, every single one of these has a story. I didn't get on eBay and buy these. Like there's, I get everyone. I can tell you what I did to earn that or what school I went to. Like I went to a school before I deployed with the army the first time. And we were using like these kind of airsoft, uh, attachments that attach on your M16. Like a BB gun? And I can't. Yeah, basically, but they they fire pretty hard, man. <laughs> uh, like leave welts, like paintball welts, okay, you know. Okay. And I came around a corner, and some guy was like hiding in a window well. He was like the bad guy, uh-huh. and he shot shot me in the junk. <laughs> and at at the end of that school, I got a coin that said I got shot in the junk, and so that's <laughs> my coin rack. <laughs> that's, pretty, that's pretty damn good. Hell yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So that's and when we had that uh, conversation that first night, you uh, gave me that challenge coin. I still uh, I cherish. And I thank you very much. And that's my my only coin. Actually, uh, interestingly enough, I'm going to send you one. Uh, the Bouncing Souls made some, and they had a song. Really? Yeah, they have a song on their um, record. I believe it's called Comet. That is called Coin Toss Girl. Okay. And on one side, the chorus is like, "Should I marry her? Should I bury her?" And on one side, it says "marry her," and the other side, it says "bury her." And I keep that in my uh, in my toiletry kit when we go on tour, like a little. That's awesome, uh, man. Yeah, a little bag. And uh, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna fire that out to you. But uh, yes, yeah, so you you spend uh, I, you you keep touching a little bit on historical stuff, and you do have a, a master's in European history. And I can't yeah. wait to to pick your brain about that a little bit. But yeah. just to go back to the Air Force, you're there for twenty two years. Uh, you made it up to a senior master sergeant, which, if I'm remembering correctly, that's the highest um, non commissioned officer rank that you could get. It's the second highest. Or second it's highest. E8. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, my uh, my grandfather was actually a uh, master sergeant in the Marine Corps. Yeah, so that's an E8 in the Marine Corps. Yeah, it's that's the top two percent. So only two percent of people will make it to that E8 pay grade. It's incredibly difficult. I mean, you can have an absolutely flawless career and still never make E8. It. Uh, yeah, I was the number one selectee out of four thousand people when I was picked up for E8. No shit. Yeah, this it might seem a, like a dumb question, but is it a literal pay grade? Do you get paid more? It is a pay grade. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's not only significant increase in pay while you're in, but increases my retirement pretty substantially. Oh hell yeah! So yeah, man. It's uh, yeah. I mean, it was uh, it was a lifetime accomplishment uh, making it to that pay grade, and it's. The Air Force is the hardest branch to promote in. Um, so, I mean, you you just – it's everything. It's it's what you're doing when you're out of uniform civically, you know, working, whatever it's volunteering. It's obtaining off-duty education. So, like you mentioned, I have a master's. And yeah. I know like, 
out here in the private sector, and this is something I'm learning through my transition out of uniform, like everybody's got a bachelor's or a master's, but in the Air Force, which is your most educated branch, less than 2% of enlisted people have master's degrees. No shit. I never would have thought that. Wow. So when I, when I went to my commencement, like all these people from my chain of command, high rank and officers and stuff came to watch me walk because it was a really big deal. So uh, part of that is because how hard it is to go to graduate school while you're in the military of all places. I mean, I, I think I moved four or five times all over the years I was in graduate school. Yeah, so, sure. uh, yeah, it was, so that kind of lends it. And then just superior duty performance over the course of many, 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 many years. Um, you know, and it's not like you're going to turn the afterburners on at one assignment and get promoted to E8 or E9. It's sustained and prolonged performance. So, yeah, yeah, one thing that uh, I've always had a uh, a bit of a camaraderie or at least a, a relation to uh, members of the uh, uh, armed forces in that we are we were all the same age, so in our early twenties, mid twenties, late twenties. Now I'm thirty three years old. Been touring the world, the country, and the world for a long time. And there are certain places where we go where there are a lot of uh, service people that come to see us because you know they'll be the only expatriates there because uh, mm-hmm, like whether mm-hmm. it's Japan or certain parts of Germany, mm-hmm. um, in Italy. Like there's so many times where a bunch of uh, people will show up and they're like, hey, yeah, we all you know we're all in the military and we're fancy band. I'm from New Jersey. Or awesome. From, yeah, we run into it. So it was I always thought it was interesting that that was of all the people that were sent from the United States or were, who had left the United States to go to these other places and experience these cultures uh there was always some servicemen there some musicians shit like that so Mm -hmm. it was a a, a, it is an opportunity for people who don't have the uh, means to to just travel you know carte blanche to be able to experience other cultures you know yeah we were so i got married at 18 still married to the same woman that's another thing that happens in the military all the time yeah Uh, and i'm also that's surprising uh and awesome that you're you're still you guys are still married i just uh, a lot of my friends who joined the military got married really early whether it was from the uh, economic incentivization or just like the culture whatever and a a lot of them ended very uh disastrously well and a lot of what it is is that the military doesn't recognize relationships or fiancés. Okay. So if you're getting sent overseas to move to X base in Japan, well, you're not bringing your girlfriend with you. And so it brushes people to some decisions. Now, we got married before I came in, but we got married and then I went in and six months later, we were stationed in Italy and that was where we spent our very first three years. And my my oldest kid was born there as well. Oh, no kidding. So, yeah, it was super cool. We're at a base called Aviano in northern Italy, about 45 minutes from Venice. So just young kids, I mean, literally 19 years old, just yeah. cruising around Italy doing your thing. It was pretty amazing. Yeah, that sounds pretty romantic. That's a cool place to, uh, I guess, start a, a, a decades-long lasting relationship. Not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was awesome, man. Yeah, hell yeah. And well, I think so- you need- Sorry, go ahead. Well, go ahead. No, go ahead, please. Yeah, I was going to ask you what uh, uh, capacity did you work in the Air Force? You mentioned that you had guarded nuclear weapons in the beginning. Yeah, that's um, what I did. Like my first ten years, I did. I was like a security guard for nuclear missiles, basically. Um, and then I got a chance at my ten-year mark uh, to retrain and and do a different job. And I wasn't really. You know, I'm not like a gung ho GI Joe kind of guy, so that. You know, my my initial career field was more, you know, that kind of vibe. Yeah. And so uh, 
I ended up, I had a chance to rejoin into the Air Force's meteorological career field. And so I basically put in a package, got accepted. Uh, I went to a school that was seven and a half months long, and I walked out and had earned 57 credit hours in seven and a half months. No shit. Damn. That's like a full, that's like what, a whole academic year or two years? Two years. Basically, and, and that's because Air Force, all your schools are, are college accredited. And Air Force actually has its own re- regionally accredited community college and university. Uh, and then I went to my first base, which is kind of like a training assignment, basically. I went to Arizona. I spent like five years there. And I, yeah, I, I did that the the remainder of my career, um, I had some pretty cool assignments. I mean, doing regular meteorological stuff like one would imagine, but the this was all operational meteorology. So think of it kind of on par with what you, the kind of meteorologist who would do a weather forecast for the plane you're hopping on tomorrow. Okay. Um, so, you know, I was forecasting for aviation assets and stuff like that. Um, with the added... Uh, uh, hopefully this doesn't turn people off, but you know, we, we drop bombs on a lot of people and they yeah, have, targeting. Uh, you know, uh, it is a, comp- it is complicated and it's hard to, yeah. I mean, I guess that's a, that's a hell of a, you know, situation to <laughs> talk about, but yeah, totally. I'm not asking you to unpack that now, you know, that's, but that's like something that not a lot of people shoulder or talk about or, or, you know, yeah. experience with. Yeah, in essence, what it is is all of our – the majority of our smart munitions have targeting systems that are weather-dependent. So – and people – you know, a few people I've mentioned that to, they're like, I don't understand that. I'm like, well, it uses telemetry or it uses IR or it uses a uh, laser. Well, lasers don't see through clouds, so you might want to have a weather guy tell you if there's going to be one between you and your target. So basically, I would have to – know these pilots missions inside and out like what direction they were coming from and all these were this different active stuff missions and not like drills you're saying yeah. these were active missions yeah oh, and i would have to provide them data for them to program into the the uh, targeting systems for their munitions to uh yeah i mean so that, that's one of the aspects of the job that was it was you know, I mean, there's obviously a lot of people with a lot of opinions about what we do in those things. But, you know, I was in the military and I had a job I had to do and that was part of it. And uh, I think the thing that, you know, I think about the military is and I, I don't know if it was you and Nick Harris were talking about this, about people coming in young like I did for educational opportunities and things like that. Well, yeah. Uh, and that's the re- that's the number one reason most people come in because you know the education opportunities are incredibly lucrative, but totally, you know you come faced with the alternatives. You know I come from an area that is fully and wholly hinged upon the um, uh, military industrial complex, whether it's the defense contractors that employ the majority of uh, 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 head of households and people there. And or the actual military involvement from the area. I mean, if you so you go to Scranton, it is a metropolitan area of like maybe five hundred thousand people. Well, the the city of Scranton has like eighty thousand people, and then it's surrounded by other smaller towns that are each connected. So you can imagine the population density is probably similar to um, Southern California in that there's there's not these big woods areas between everything. You're just in one city, and you might not even know if you're in the next city because uh, exactly it's just the houses are just there. Like one, your next door neighbor is not going to be in the same city. 
anxiety. But the way that these uh, places are foyered or foyered and bouquet is you go in the main road and there'll be a giant tank or a giant anchor or a helicopter. <laughs> My sister lives next door to a decommissioned tank that's been bronzed or, or welded shut or whatever the fuck, however you would describe it. But those are everywhere. So when we first started to yeah. tour, uh, I was, you know, we didn't see them everywhere. <laughs> so it's like uh, yeah. an interesting, um, like uh, to realize that not everything was so military centric. Uh, so we grew up with a yeah. lot of friends who joined the military. Our grandparents, uh, both of my grandfathers were um, in different services of the military. And my mom was born at Fort Knox. My dad was born at a military base in Connecticut. Um, yeah, it was just really, really in, in, ingrained in us in that uh, right when I graduated from high school yeah. was 2005. So that was, you know, we, we invaded Iraq in 2003. So it was really kind of like sure. a, a big upswing of people people joining the services. I'm sure you had a lot of friends that joined. Yeah, a whole lot. And they you would always come home with lots of money. <laughs> that was the... Uh, yeah, that's that's your deployment money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, uh, and I, I didn't... So I didn't... <sighs> You know, I didn't grow up in a military family. I was the first person to serve, like since like a great grandfather of mine. Yeah. Matter of fact, that's his uh, medals from World War II and no his shit. flag that was on his coffin. I mean, yeah, they were given yeah. to me. Uh, but I didn't grow up in a military family. You know, I hadn't had anybody that had served. Um, I just, I was a smart kid. I did well in high school, but I, I came from. I was born in a little town in Illinois called near Peoria. If you guys have ever played Bloomington Normal or any of those places, you know it. Once every two years and, or a year, we play the Quad Cities. You guys get there. Yeah, and so I grew up in the town's called Pekin, and my family has been there since like the 1840s in this town. No shit. And yeah, no doubt. And when I was a kid, my dad uh, worked for Caterpillar Tractor in Peoria and was a machinist, and they were always striking. And he moved us out to California, and I was like four years old. Uh, so, you know, really deep roots in the Midwest, but I, you know, I grew up in California. But I, you know, it's a different environment there, and you can probably, you know, understand this pretty well growing up, you know, kind of in a rust bucket area, no different than Illinois. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but, um, <laughs> but I was the first high school graduate of my family. I mean, all my aunts, uncles, cousins, parents, grandparents, everybody had dropped out. They dropped out and found a body shop they were going to work in or some kind of trade they were going to learn. And that's how they made kind of built their life. So I was a kid, you know, there was never any, uh, talk about, hey, let's go tour the school or, hey, uh, you know, let me help you get, you know, registered to go to college or anything because my parents were uneducated and they didn't maybe understand the value of it or how to help me. And so uh, that was, you know, really the largest part of why I decided to join was, uh, you know, to have a chance to get my education, which I took full advantage of. And uh, and it's more than just what it can do for you. I mean, I walked out with a master's, two bachelor's, three associates, a couple of different credentials. Uncle Sam paid for all that. Yeah. Um, and then my kid, my, my oldest, goes to University of Colorado Denver on my GI Bill. And, like, he lives like a king on my GI Bill. It's crazy. <laughs> it's it's post-9-11 GI, GI Bill is. Yeah. So, I mean, so... 
that that's you know and i know you've touched on that before on some of the other segments but man it's huge like what it can do to change your station in life and provide you an opportunity to maybe uh move up a couple rungs up the ladder and do something a little different so and we we kind of touched on it a little bit before but there's the i think that as uh, at least for me as i've gotten an older man that seeing the more the moral quandary that exists there i think that it would be difficult to get uh someone who's seen the world as much as we have or as as old as i've gotten at least that you couldn't convince i mean back then uh, there when i was a young teenager i was very interested in the military uh, and then as soon as i got into punk rock and got a little bit uh, more into some of the politics that are around it and watching what happened with uh september 11th the invasion of afghanistan the invasion of iraq by that time i was the, you were not getting me in there and i think that uh it's yeah. kind of easier to get younger people to do the fighting um yeah because they just don't question things as much and they don't know as much about the world and and i mean i i would say i'm probably guilty of that as well and you know and i think once you're kind of whoa uh, you know woke a little bit or quote you know (laughs) (laughs) for for lack of a better term maybe yeah you know and you're you're like oh okay and i think of how i fit in i mean by and large the military is very conservative republicans and you know that kind of stuff and here i am a, a a very very liberal democrat from southern california they you know and of course anytime yeah. you meet anybody when you're in the military and you say i'm from southern california it's like go ahead and let the jokes come out or whatever you know <laughs> you know some nuts or whatever joke they have and i'm like well i just that's where i grew up you know yeah um, totally that's funny so i, uh, I, I always felt like a round peg kind of in a square hole in the military in a lot of ways because of that, just because of my belief system was a little different. Yeah, I can imagine for sure. Uh, I do have to, to go back a little bit. So you said that you guarded um, nuclear weapons for about 10 years in the, or 11 years. Yeah. And then you worked in uh, <laughs> uh, uh, doing uh, meteorological operations. So, uh, you know, things pointed at the sky. I got to ask you, have you ever heard any weird stories about um, any type of, let's say, extra-dimensional craft or, like, not to dive right into that, or just things that you couldn't necessarily explain or that were above even your high pay grade? I never had really any anything that I was exposed to, and I, you know, I had, like, some of the loftiest security clearances that you could have. It was never like, hey, let's go behind this door and you're going to see these dudes in formaldehyde or whatever it was. I never <laughs> had anything like that. I had a few, like, spiritual or, or supernatural kind of things happen during my time, but never anything of the unexplained like that. Never. Sure. Um, uh, yeah, I brought it up because some of the uh, um, accounts that I had spent time reading about were particularly um, the amount of sightings of, of UFOs around um, nuclear armaments and intercontinental ballistic missiles and stuff like that. And there's some uh, some really interesting testimony about that. But uh, and with the more recent kind of um, things in the news, the Tic Tac UFOs that had happened in San Diego and off the coast of New York, I think it was. Uh, but we'll save. I'm gonna save that for a different podcast. Uh, can, <laughs> can you touch on the uh, uh, maybe some of the supernatural, spiritual stuff that that kind of went down? Are you comfortable talking about that? Yeah, man. I so I'll tell you. You talked about intercontinental ballistic missiles. Well, that's yeah. what I did for about seven of those ten years out oh, in no Wyoming. Shit. I those. Uh, so I just learned. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but I just I didn't oh, realize yeah, ahead, how fast they were. So they would make it to Moscow in like what five minutes. Yeah, like they're basically like rockets. They literally are like on rockets that they lift space shuttles up, you know, out of the atmosphere with. Jesus. So yeah, they're hardcore. And yeah, then, and like you get highly 
highly classified very fast when you start talking about a lot of that kind of stuff. But yeah, fuck, like, man, that's just like it, it's crazy to think that you could make a decision and then you can't back out of it in five minutes. Like that's the, to, the you know the yeah. slaughter of, of especially if it was aimed at an urban area or something. They're talking t- t- tens of millions of people. <laughs> like fucking Jesus. Yeah, I that's I something the that power I, behind them uh, until recently. Sorry. That was a lot of my studies in graduate school was on basically, you know, the bombing of industrial centers and yeah. how there was these theoretical applications of air power uh, that you could bomb a, a country into submission, which in, in retrospect, we found out that that actually isn't the case in many, you know, Germany and, and Japan. But yeah, uh, yeah I, so I basically you, you asked about supernatural. I had something yeah, weird. So we we. We would get alarms that would go off in the middle of the night, and you would have to drive, you know, 30 minutes across dirt roads through farm country to this launch silo, and you'd have to clear the alarm. And I remember one time we got an alarm that caused us to have to, like, open a hatch and go down in, not to where the nuclear missile was at, but to where there's, like, a backup generator and things like that. Okay. And, uh you would have to have these like lead seals kind of like you'd see on a semi or something that they were like wanting to account for some cargo in it and they would put the lead seals on it. Okay. Like yeah, if so you it's saw like, a, like a, a, an unbreakable clip thing that only accounts for exactly. you steel or whatever in the back of the truck. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And we would, we would have to, we would always take and have uh, a couple of those with us because we'd have to open this hatch and we'd break the seal. Yeah. And I remember I took the lock and the seal off and sat it right there next to the hatch. And then my my teammate and I went down, cleared cleared this hatch, come back up. We were going to get ready to close the lid. And then I reach over to pull, you know, grab the lock and the seal. And they were like 20 foot away. Whoa. And uh, I mean. It was only he and I out there. I mean, we're literally on a nuclear silo where if anybody else was out there, we would know. And I'm like, what the hell is going on here? You know, and they were just like 20 foot away. And Holy shit, ne- that's never- crazy. And you're out in the middle of nowhere, man. So it's really frightening when something like that happens because it's like you and your partner and you guys got M16s and you're like an hour from the nearest human being. Wow. So And nobody yeah, that knows was, where that was it really- is. You know, there's nobody like, yeah, there's not like kids <sighs> playing around and- <laughs> No, no way. Yeah, Yeah, no way. Yeah, and it, and then when you're out there in the middle of nowhere, like that farm country in the middle of the winter or whatever, and yeah, it was it was one of the weirder incidents that kind of stood the hair up on (laughs) for me. (laughs) I can't even imagine. So, what did you just walk over and pick it up and come back? Well, he and I were just looking at each other like, what the hell? Because he had seen me set it down, and we had kind of like our procedures mapped out where I'm going to open this up, I'm going to set these things here, and then I'm going to go down this way, and like kind of military precision to how you were going to, you know, uh, clear this alarm. And yeah, yeah, no no reason why it would have been over there, but totally could have been explainable, but certainly wasn't at that time. So weird, weird instance. Yeah, my yeah. brain's art is spinning like, well, if it was made of metal, did it get um, yeah. magnetized, that kind of thing? But his lead, his lead, lead's not magnetic, right? It's not yeah, iron, well, and I assume they're lead seals. That's We were always told they were, yeah. but heck, I don't know what the, the metallic makeup of, of it was. So. Yeah, who, who, who fucking knows? That's, that's, a, that's a crazy story, man. That's awesome. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. 
Um, <laughs> so you yeah. uh, had taken advantage of being in the military to get, you just listed, what, five degrees? You said two bachelors, a master's in European history, and three associate's degrees? Yeah, and, and like three professional credentials. Damn. Call it, uh, well, I, I will tell you tell you what, what like the, the catalyst was, man. I had been in about 10 years, and of course, I was the kid that came in to go to school, but I never went to school. Um, you know, always, always an excuse or whatever, you know, never could find my way to the campus kind of thing. And I broke my back in a training accident. Oh, no shit. And yeah, like severely, I, I had like a grade four, uh, what they call spondylolisthesis. Basically, my uh, two of my vertebrae separated off of one another and they were crushing like my spine and the nerves that went down my legs. Um, Fuck. And I had to have, yeah, man, it was, it was terrible. Um, and when it comes to like back injuries, they don't just say, oh, cool, your back's broke. We're going to go ahead and do surgery. They, surgery is like absolutely the last resort uh, when it comes to most back injuries. Yeah, I guess all it takes so, is like a little slip up and then there goes, you know, the use of yeah. anything that detaches from your central nervous system, you know? Yeah, it's really frightening. And I, so they kind of, you know, I did about a year and a half of, you know, physical therapy, injections you know, traction, the whole nine yards. And it was actually, the situation was getting worse. And so I had went in to see a surgeon, an orthopedic surgeon, and he had taken some x-rays of me, like bending forward and, and standing up in different positions. And he's like, literally, like if you slam your brakes, you could be paralyzed. Like you need to have your spine fused immediately to inhibit this mobility because it's really dangerous. Wow. Uh, so yeah, man. So I, it was like a couple weeks after my 30th birthday. And so, I mean, here's the thing about the military is like you're in the military for one reason and one reason only, and that's to deploy and fight our nation's wars. And when you have a physical ailment that jeopardizes your ability to do that, uh, the military doesn't have a lot of use for you anymore. They'll, sure. they'll shoot you out the door, give you your little VA disability, and off you go. Um, but here I was, I'm, you know, 30 years old. Two kids at home. You already uh, primary been in the military bed, for like what? Twelve years. 12 years. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, By the time I had surgery, about twelve years, and the military convenes what they call a medical evaluation board on me, and basically their their job is to determine whether you're fit to continue to serve or not. Well, when they convene this board, I had my surgery date scheduled, and they basically said, "Cool, we'll put a pause on this for six months." Let you have surgery, and then we'll see how see how you're doing. And so it's all doom and gloom when you're going through this. Nobody's talking about like what it's going to be like when you get to the stay or anything like that. It's going to be, yeah, hey, when the work comes down. Oh, dude, it was it was scary. I had no education or anything. So, like, I decided at that point, I'm like, admin, and and I literally. At calendar year, I finished two associates, no, excuse me, three associates and a bachelor in that, that calendar year while I was going through this. I mean, I was taking like these 10 week classes online. And I was taking five classes at a time and I was just, just destroying it, man, as quickly yeah. as I can knock it out. And because I was scared, man, yeah. I mean, I had this physical element. It's like, how am I going to do this job that I've been trained to do? Yeah. Uh, and so it comes, you know, after the surgery, I, I healed up fairly well um, and had a, quite a few good years. And 
I they end up deciding that they're going to allow me to remain in service, which is crazy because there was never any talk of that at all. Oh, and wow. so literally like right around the time when I got that news, I was, I had finished my bachelor's degree. And so I kind of made a, a promise to myself that I would never allow me myself to jeopardize my ability to take care of my family by sitting on my laurels with stuff. And so I continued to go to school and I, that last, that next 10 years of my career, I continued just, you know, anything that the Air Force would pay, I would do, you know, any, any certifications, qualifications, whatever. Um, Probably a little bit of overcompensation and um, and and why the masters in history. My my goal in life, what I wanted to do, is be a history teacher. And so I literally, my last year in uniform, I earned a teaching credential while I was still in the military, which is like profoundly hard to do to do your practicum time while you're in. Yeah, it's not like you had to go and get into a classroom while you have like a full time job. Yeah, it was like two or three hundred hours over, you know, a semester. I was fortunate that I worked for a guy that was just really believed in helping people transition well out of the military. And he was really super supportive. And so I altered my duty hours and things like that so I could participate in my practicum time. Um, So I ended up getting my credential and do all my testing and all that. And then uh, I started applying jobs for out here in Denver, you know, and I'm getting ready to retire. And so I'm getting job offers for like $38,000 a year for a first-year teacher with a master's degree. Well, I mean, a single-family home in Denver starting is about 400000 and yeah, you and your 30-year close. Yeah. You and 30-year closest friends will be bidding on that same home. Yeah, exactly. So just economic reality is that for me to start a new career in my 40s, completely different or with what I had done before not lending itself to it uh, just was not a reality for me. I couldn't raise my family on that kind of money and live out here. Um, So I ended up uh, getting um, in with a company that develops training like e-learning content and full video production capability. Yeah. And so I do program ma- do program management for them. I personally and I oversee think that like that's, uh, one of the ways of the future and one of the ways that uh, people, at least of my generation, and uh, I know are professionally develop and uh, people talking to my younger cousins and, and, and shit like that, the alternative to the classroom-based um, teaching model is kind of they're becoming more and more popular. I mean, personally, I, I took a uh, there's a, a website called Coursera that is an aggregate for a lot of uh, college online classes. They modify the classes, and then you're like a peer graded, and they're based off of video lectures with like um, I think they use AI cool. to, to to design some of sure. the. Yeah, um, yeah, they like pull it from the video and then you'll get like a word for word kind of like that kind of shit. But I learned, I, t- wow. I took a, a photography certificate program through Michigan State University and it was like 50 bucks to do the whole thing. It was like $50 for like two months. Uh, so I did it, you know, it took like six months or whatever. So it was cheap as hell and it was incredible. And I think that that's uh, uh, the future of a lot of that shit. And that's um, cool. You found a, a way to, you know, still teach, I guess. Is that what you're saying? You're doing that. It's like developing yeah, these programs, you know? I oversee people, so I interface directly with the client on behalf of the company, and then I oversee teams of people that develop the training. So, like, I had a project that we just finished up for the Air Force where we were creating ethical decision-making videos with accompanying facilitation material. And so it could be, like, you know, people being dishonest about 
I don't know, whatever, how they did on their physical fitness test or something. And so I'm literally, I get to work, like we have our own media department at the company I work for, and I'm on set while they're filming these films, and which is super cool because I've never done anything like that in my life. Yeah. And I, it's it's a lot of fun. So I was kind of laughing when you when we first started and you were talking about lighting because I never <laughs> knew there was so much to lighting until I got on set with these guys. So Yeah, and for so anybody listening, kind of when we, cool, we first started doing this, the lighting that I had here because we're, we're recording this on Skype the uh, light that was shining off my bald ass head was so bright that it was distorting <laughs> other parts of my own camera so I had to fix that but yeah yeah totally and uh, now that you pay attention to that shit I feel like you see the world a little bit differently not to get too far on a tangent of the the creation of art there's like you know th- there's there's a curse uh, as a musician that I can't listen to and I've spent so much time in the studio and, and recording our band and recording other bands and, and, and analyzing music that I can't listen to music the same way that you can as a carefree way and that's maybe a negative downside to it but it's a positive downside to it because there's sorry positive upside there's so many layers to that shit so now i think when i did the photography thing and you're talking about working with uh, visual arts and lighting you start to notice and see the world in a different way Mm -hmm. because you have that vocabulary it's like a a secret world gets unlocked you know it's it's a very yeah it's very interesting it has been interesting and as and you know in my job i have to kind of bridge that techie speak from, you know, our media development team, you know, from the DP and all these different folks into stuff that our client can understand. So it's, it's really cool. Uh, so, and it allows me to kind of take a lot of what I learned during my time in the military, my, you know, background in higher ed, that kind of stuff and apply it to something that I do pretty well. And, and it pays a little bit better than being a teacher, unfortunately. Yeah, totally. I have uh, one of my best friends, um, Bobby Barnett, who played in Captain We're Sinking, is actually uh, uh, Greg uh, in our band. His 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 younger brother uh, is a history teacher here in Philadelphia, and I love that. Him oh, wow. and, uh, uh, and our tour manager Scott and myself, we have this uh, group chat that is only history memes, and then sometimes we'll go off a little tangents, and uh, it's really really fun. We super big history nerd. I haven't really gotten into it on the podcast at all yet, but I'm super stoked to to talk to you a bit about it. I don't I don't want to glaze over something though that. And I should have interrupted you. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Double sorry. No, I'm not going to. But uh, you <laughs> talked about you made a, a choice. It was like a, a stoic, concrete choice after you got injured. And I found it extremely um, inspirational. Inspir- uh, inspirational. I think it's really important to share it with uh, you know other people that can, can relate to it or be inspired by it. it so you decided to take that whole terrible situation and and – roll it into the most positive thing that you possibly could and made an act, a decision then uh, a guideline for the rest of your life. And I think that's, um, I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. I just really wanted to. Uh, yeah, it's funny. Well. I, uh, thank you. Uh, the latter part of my career in the military, the air force got really focused on these, what they call pillars, like a, a spiritual, social, mental, and, and physical pillars. Okay. Like you needed to have all these, your, your chair couldn't be upheld if you didn't have, you know, you, you weren't working on all these aspects of your life. And so part of this, like, they got a really big program they call resilience. And that was your ability to, you know, come back from things, bounce back. And uh, because of my story and coming back from a really significant injury, um, I got asked, you know, to speak about that a number of times in my career. And that was one of the most uh things that I was most proud of in my career was getting to try to inspire people with a little bit of my story. And, um, yeah, it was, man, it was tough. And I, I, uh, 
I remember I was in the hospital for about a week and I was, uh, I had to learn to walk again. Um, because when they released all that pressure off my nerves, like everything just didn't, my sensations and ability to do certain, uh, motor functions just, I don't know. I had to relearn it and had to understand how to do things. I mean, I was, I was, uh, I had to use, I was in the hospital for a week on a pain pump, um, and then I used a walker for What's a maybe a month pump? after that. Is that like a literal pump that removes your spine? Literally, your like spy? got a little deal. No, no, it's like a a pump that like you push a button and it gives you dilated. Basically, oh, there you go. Lady D, you could clarify. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so yeah, it was it was it was pretty rad unless you fell asleep and you couldn't uh, give yourself any medication because <laughs> you were you wake up in a lot of pain. Yeah, but. I remember the day they brought me home from the hospital, um, and I had a, a procedure that they call P-lift, a posterior lumbar inner body fusion. Basically, what they did was took and removed uh, my L5 disc and created a huge bone graft there, and then it's held in by rods and pins. Jeez. And uh, yeah, it was. And I remember they sent me home, and they sent me home with Vicodin. Well, yeah. I know people like stubbed their toe. Vicodin, man. And here I had like major reconstructive spinal surgery. And so by the time I got home, I was like in just absolutely excruciating pain and you don't have any pain medication to break through that. I mean, it to it. And I remember I picking up my phone and calling the command posts on the base and asking them to connect me to the chaplain so he could like pray for my soul. And I wasn't even a religious person, but I was in so much pain that I thought I was going to die. Um, I was, I wasn't even capable. Like I had to pee literally like in a jug next to my bed because I wasn't capable to the, to the, yeah, yeah, it was totally, totally helpless, man. I mean, wiping your ass with kitchen tongs and the whole nine yards. And that's crazy Uh, too. that They gave you Vicodin, which is like what max is out at like 10 milligrams or something, uh, for that yet uh, you get a teenager, it gets their uh, wisdom teeth out and they'll get fucking Percocet. Hell, yeah, I, I got Perks when I got my wisdom teeth out. Yeah, so yeah, right. it, it needless to say it didn't do well at controlling the pain. So yeah. it was just really difficult time and I was bedridden for about two months. God damn. And, uh, so yeah, during that two I, months, I just, were you hitting the um, online classes? Yeah. Yeah, damn. I sure was, man. I was still school because i had that much resolve about it that like i i needed to do this and so i ended up coming out of the surgery and it was about a year before i was cleared to do any physical activity because they had to wait for all those bone grafts to heal and so and that takes quite a while does so it gotta grow um, calcium and like is it gotta like become it's it basically bone? becomes bone right. yeah exactly it yeah. becomes reinforced bone and and uh yeah it was uh it was tough man but it's it's interesting like looking back now on, on retrospect you know like a dozen years later like i wouldn't have changed any of that um that was what i needed to go through yeah. to change my perspective on life on a lot of things and i just you, you know i saw like a, a really you know like you know i'd been married a lot of years at that point and my wife was like my caregiver i mean complete i mean everything from bathing me to you know feeding me the whole nine yards i wasn't capable of doing anything and it's funny how history kind of repeats itself because she ended up having to have the same surgery about i don't know seven or eight years after i had it and i had to care for her coming out of it no fucking way so 
Wow. Yeah, so both of us. So, I mean, I ended up, and I can't say it's all peaches and cream, man. I have a, a lot of significant issues with my back, and I, I am actually, I'm a 100% service-disabled veteran. Damn. Uh, wow. So, I mean, I, I go to the VA, I have to get shots frequently in my back to kind of control the pain, and, you know, I have a, a whole group of medication that I have to take to you know, help with the muscle issues and the nerve, you know, nerve issues and stuff like that. But, um, that's just my cross to bear, you know, I mean, that's sometimes what you got to go through in life, you know, to, I don't know, I wouldn't change it. I mean, would I like to have my health back? Sure. But like, you can't have those experiences if you don't have to, you know, wade through the muck a little bit. Jesus. And thank you for sharing that. I think, uh, I mean, I personally found that really inspiring. Um, so just to segue, jump into that education. So you uh, got your uh, master's in European history and you wrote your thesis. I'm reading from, from, from some of your words here. Uh, <laughs> your thesis on aviation and the theoretical application of air power in World War I and World War II. Well, I just watched the World War II in color special on Netflix. Uh, it was like six episodes Bad long. They just did a new one. Yeah, they did uh, yep. a, um, an episode on Dresden. Uh, and I didn't realize the firebombing of, fire of Dresden. So I didn't uh, realize, you know, I'm no expert on it, except for the fact that I watched a 60-minute Netflix episode about it. Uh, I didn't realize the um, some of the infrastructure of the city and the way that the tunnels connected mm-hmm. the buildings was one of the reasons why it had burned so bad. And also that while mm-hmm. it was a, a, a completely horrendous and, and, and uh, you know, arguably morally reprehensible act, um, the original... Casualty numbers may have been inflated by the um, Nazi propagandists. Am I correct in saying that? Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know that, uh, or if that's uh, yeah. I don't know if positive. I've ever heard that, but yeah. But it, I, I definitely could strengthen the nation's resolve. So, yeah. like that right there is a direct correlation to what I studied. So I, I, I actually had a, a super cool thing where I got to work uh, in the National Archives with uh, the works of cool. a guy named. Yeah, it was amazing, man. I'm so you talking went to, like, like to I DC, you got to go down in a, yeah. I picture like well, an I elevator situation. I was stationed in Hampton, Virginia when I was working on my thesis. Okay. And so I would drive up to DC on Saturday morning and I had a, like a special access tar- card to get into the archives. I'm talking about like white gloves and the whole nine yards. <laughs> and I worked with uh, like all these papers and personal effects of a guy named Billy Mitchell. And he is considered the father of the United States Air Force. No shit. Um, Mm-hmm. And I and he died in the 30s, and I got I basically was like literally holding uh, unpublished manuscripts of his and documents. Yeah. But what I wrote, what I, I studied three people. I studied Billy Mitchell, a, a British guy named Hugh Trenchard, and then a uh, Italian man named Julio Dohe. And basically, Julio Dohe is the father of strategic bombing. And this dude died like in the 1920s or the late, yeah, yeah, around the 20s. And what they basically, what he theorized was that you could bomb a country into submission by bombing their population centers. You could literally break their will to wage war. And then Trenchard and Mitchell kind of, yeah, it is very dark, man. And and they took it a, a, a kind of a, you know, a step further and basically said, rather than bombing the people, and uh, why don't we bomb their industrial center and destroy their ability to make war? And that's what much of what we were trying to do in Germany. 
uh, much, I say, because there was a lot of indiscriminate bombing as well. Uh, but so I basically looked at these these guys and their their theories were became what was called air war plans number one and that was basically when world war ii happened what the the army air corps took off the shelf on how they were going to defeat you know nazi germany and japan for that matter and was the Um, army air corps a precursor to the united states air force yeah the air force wasn't formed until september 18th of 1947 okay so kind of like the space force is a part of the air force right now kind of the same the same premise or the marine corps which has remained a part of the department of the navy though yeah but in in essence uh what uh what they they had created these plans about and pushed to have these long-range strategic bombers built so they could bomb these industrial complexes uh now in japan you know once the b-29 came online uh, i think in the spring of 44 they were able to reach uh japan like in force with these b-29s and that's part of why iwo jima was so important because of the landing strip yeah but they it was just complete indiscriminate bombing and but what they found is like these guys that theorize well you break a nation's will but the resolve was actually strong in a lot of in the countries and it was the polar opposite because i think the people just banded together because of this shared hardship and i mean there was i mean there's cities in japan where like a hundred thousand people die you know from yeah. a fire so, and that's interesting because yeah. i guess like while they were doing it in world war ii you could see what it did to the uh, morale of of and the the galvanization of of Great Britain and the United Kingdom. I mean, while you would have the idea that maybe we could bomb them to submission, they were being bombed and it just made them stronger. So by and large, you know, my finding was that, you know, the, you know, strategic bombing to break a nation's will basically didn't work, you know? Um, so, and I touched a little bit on Vietnam and some of the precision guided munitions that started to come out at that point. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was really interesting stuff. I learned a lot about a uh, really cool subject and I had to learn a lot about aviation to understand how all that stuff worked. So, uh, and it was hard, man. I mean, I wrote 107 pages and I ended up with a 3.94 GPA in graduate school. And Damn. I, uh, I just, but part of it like wasn't because I was studious. It was because I couldn't afford to pay the classes back. And <laughs> Uncle Sam, when you issue tuition assistance, in essence, says if you get in graduate school, if you get lower than a B, you got to pay the class back. <laughs> so I was overcompensating for the yeah. fact that I couldn't afford to pay expensive classes back. So. Yeah, the, uh, uh, that stuff is so fascinating. And as uh, in my recent memory, I also never really realized what had happened at the Battle of Midway, um, which I found was super fascinating with the group of, I don't know how familiar you are with it. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar. The, yeah, you're going to be more familiar than me. So please bear with me. But the, uh, the, the end part where the kind of battle turned a little bit for the Americans when the um, dive bomber group just stumbled upon the Japanese armada. They were just like out there searching the water while they were being bombed and then just showed up. And then the idea that you have thousands of people on a giant boat and you're in the, on one boat. So there's several of these boats that have thousands of people on them and you're in the middle of the Pacific ocean, which is not habited, inhabited by any uh, a civilization or, or groups of uh, uh, tribal human beings. <laughs> And you're driving steel things and trying to just make them explode 
is fucking crazy. Like that thing would just sink and you'd be getting hit by these planes and bullets coming through. And it just, the whole thing is just so bizarre and like powerful that, uh, you know, I just didn't, didn't really realize the gravity and the weight of all that. Yeah. There's, you know, I mean, it's, uh, and the, the interesting thing about the whole war in the Pacific is I think most people, you know, they think, Oh, Hey, we were, we were, you know, uh, basically attacked unprovoked. Well, that's, that's all negligible there or debatable because I think Japan got 85% of their oil supply from us. And we basically took all that away. And so we forced their hand in some ways to retaliate, maybe in some way, shape or form. And maybe there's people who agree with that or who won't, but, uh, who wants to hear a nuanced and, uh, infinitely intricate, um, story <laughs> with complicated uh moral areas everybody wants to hear a uh, you know yeah. David and goliath it's kind of or you know pick your pick your hero yeah yeah and i think it's hard when you start talking about you know you're a ship with however several thousand people on it and how that differs the way you look at it versus you know an individual you know doing some kind of heroic act you know sure. yeah. so well, I just pictured when yeah, the thing uh, got bombed, somebody had to be like, you know, the guy that was taking a shit, you know, and just just there on this giant <laughs> thing, and it's you know, it's there's there's seems to be cinematic glory that's emblazoned in all of us. In fact, I think that any time I think of World War II, I'm inevitably just going to think of the hours of um, uh, you know, dramatized version of it that I've seen. Like that's the only framework that I'm yeah. gonna. I mean, there's archival footage and stuff like that, you know, but I'm always going to think of it's kind of like uh, you always think of the bad guy as having a British accent, you know, whether or Romans is having British accent, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, the complete coloration yeah. for us is, is uh, and if, yeah. if you look like if I don't know if you've been to the National World War Two Museum in New Orleans there, but they have like a whole section on propaganda, American propaganda, trying to dehumanize the Germans to some extent, but the Japanese to a greater extent or a significant extent about just, you know, painting them as like, you know, inhuman or, or making them look a certain way where people thought differently about them. But I think like a lot of that part of the thing with Germany versus, you know, a significant amount of Americans are, are of Germans descent. Many Americans have the same religion, the same deities, those kind of things versus Japan were so vastly different than us. Oh yeah. And, I think that, uh, we, uh, you know, you can see the immediate uh, visual difference of someone who looks Japanese and someone who looks like uh, of Western European descent. Uh, and the German yeah. one, you forget or, or you don't learn that the, the influence that germany had on american society like especially where i live in pennsylvania oh, there's an time. area called uh, the, the pennsylvania dutch uh which is actually the pennsylvania mm-hmm. deutsch so it was all um, the german mennonites that had come over and even in philadelphia I'm, mm-hmm. i just got this this old book i went um to this cool place the entire market with my friend roger harvey and i found a uh photographic history of philadelphia a book that was from like 1972 oh, wow. and i grabbed it and in it it goes over the german influence there's this german town uh, a lot of the street names had uh german street names there were 300,000 people who natively spoke german in philadelphia in the beginning of the 20th century and then 20 years yeah. later you go to a large-scale war uh, and you just kind of like to, back to your point as to say that uh, part of american society was german society and that um yeah, our food. If yeah, your hot dog and your hamburger is the frankfurter and the hamburger. Yeah. You know, it's like this it, mm-hmm. as as American as it gets. Um, and I haven't been to the World War II Museum in New Orleans, although I'd really like to go. I have seen uh, some of the Japanese uh, propaganda and also the, 
you know, like the, yes. the Looney Tunes cartoons that you'll see where they give a, a preface before. Mm-hmm. And it's like, hey, we're not going to we're not going to ban this, but this is the wrong cultural understand. Uh, context that we had at the mm-hmm. time. And yeah, it's a uh, you know, it's extremely complicated. In a, in a and I think that's up. where one thing where, you, you know, and both of us have had jobs where we traveled for different reasons. But, uh, yeah. you know, I got to live in I got to live in Asia and South Korea for a year, you know, and and uh like my daughter is super 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 big into all these korean boy bands oh, like k-pop and, shit uh, and stuff like so, that oh yeah she loves <laughs> loves it man loves yeah. it and uh but which is cool because like i lived in this country and like so i i thought the culture was amazing it was a really super cool country to be in the people were great the food was fabulous yeah. uh i got to do a a lot of things I'll probably never get to do again in my life there, you know, and and so I uh, I think it's cool that there's all this kind of cross pollination with Korean culture in the states right now, and the K-pop become a big where kids are interested in learning something about somewhere else. Totally. So I think that's good. Yeah, I think it's good too. That's what my my grandfather on my dad's side actually did two tours uh, in Korea during the the, the Korean War there. And he spoke more fondly of some of the people that he had met there and more specifically his time in transit through Japan, uh, which is interesting because you figure we had dropped a nuclear weapon on Japan and had, you know, a terrible war where so many people died. And then a couple of years later, that opening up to trade and the new servicemen station there, I mean, it's not an easy or... um, graceful thing to go through but the fact that he just loved it so much and the fact that so uh, much of um you know not quite fetishization but the the cross cultural pollination or whatever you want to call it of uh that is just yeah it, it is a hopeful thing at least in my eyes for sure uh-oh no wait are you back all right, cool. Sorry, I yeah. lost you. I lost you there for a second. I'll be able to edit that. Edit that part. Yeah, I don't know so, what happened. I don't know. Maybe you just said the most but profound thing in the world, and I just missed it. It's not. Uh, no, probably not. <laughs> but I think it's you know it's neat that you know the the perspective that gives when you get to travel and and see different cultures and uh you know it uh I, I spent you know four out of twenty two years living in foreign countries and yeah. I, I would say the only probably. Uh, kind of negative thing about Korea is that's uh, for most people that get stationed there, that's an unaccompanied assignment. So I was oh, away from my wife, kid, wife and kids for. Eight. Oh no! Yeah, shit. I was. I didn't. Yeah, I was away from my wife and kids for eighteen months. Wow! And so that yeah yeah I mean that that aspect of it is was incredibly tough, and it was sometimes a little bit of hard to have. Uh, you know, a good outlook on things when you're missing your family and all that kind of stuff. So, but I tried to make the best of it I could while I was over there and travel and do different things and experience the culture. And I guess now that the pain of being away from your family is kind of long forgotten, I have a lot of really fond memories of just doing things over there in the. Uh, sorry, I think I am losing you a little bit here. I gotcha. But yeah, I can uh, I yep. can't even imagine being away uh, eighteen months from uh, from my from my fiance. I can't imagine it'd be like from your wife and kids for that long. That's that's so long. We do a six week tour, and at the end of it, I'm like, Jesus Christ, I'm never doing a six week tour again. <laughs> it's 
They literally, like, when you get ready to redeploy back to the States, they send you through classes on how to reintegrate with your family because just so many people have so much uh, uh, issue, you know, getting kind of back into life with their family, you know. Um, You know, like, my wife was mom and dad for 18 months, and, like, you got to kind of ease your way back into your family life again, you know, especially once the newness wears off of you being home again. So right. I'm glad um, that they don't just uh, – I'm sure they used to, but I'm glad that they don't just fire you back and say, all right, see you later. But, uh, that, yeah, I could imagine yeah. you would have to be able to integrate that. Uh, we always have this thing where I get home from tour, uh, and I live with, with, with my fiance Beth Ann now, uh, where we'll get a little bit on each other's nerves for the first 24 hours because she's used to living her life and I'm living <laughs> my life. And yeah. I can't imagine what it'd be like for 18 years with a family structure. It's got to be impossible. Yeah. I notice that whenever I get back, it's always like a little bit more defensive, ball busting, curse too much. Uh, <laughs> from being on, on Out the, there on having bus. fun. Yeah, having fun or being like having to be defensive and uh, make sure you're not on everybody's up each other's ass the entire time. But yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It, it seems like from what we've been talking about that the uh, uh, at least the Air Force has embraced a bit more i don't even know how it was before that but embraced uh some of these um interpersonal relationship uh strategies and mental health um uh, mm-hmm. i don't know treatments to be able to uh help the people that are involved yeah. through these things because i mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation that you said that um you, starting psychotherapy last year has been immensely helpful for you mm-hmm. uh, considering your experiences yeah. and that kind of shit I think uh, it's integrated into a lot of aspects. I uh, I don't know if, if you were aware of this, but I had uh, a close friend that was killed in Afghanistan in 2011. And uh, I was uh, what they call the mortuary affairs liaison for my unit. And I wasn't deployed with them. I was back stateside. But in essence, what that means is when he was killed, there was certain duties I had to execute. Like a will executor, um, like, almost like a. No, I was responsible for interfacing with his family on prevent, uh, planning his funeral, memorial ceremonies, all that kind of stuff. Because he was silver star, which is the third highest medal that you can win. Yeah. Uh, and so I had all these. I had interfaced with his family an extensive amount, and I had heard, already known them before he was killed. Um, and I, uh, like, as soon as this went down, you know, when we found out that he was killed, like within hours, there were multiple chaplains inside the building that I worked in where everybody, where he had worked, uh, offering people. And, and as the next weeks and months kind of transpired as we honored him with different, you know, ceremonies and, and that kind of stuff, uh, they were still there and offering, you know, assistance or to lend an ear or whatever to people. So I thought that that was nice to see that, you know, that was thought of in in that time to, uh, you know, that was probably one of the few times in my entire career in the military where I lost my cool with people just because it was just so terribly stressful. Um, And there was many aspects of the job that I had to do that were really, really difficult, you know, from, uh, you know, accounting and transporting his personal effects and uh, bringing his remains to the funeral home and things like that, that I had to do as part of my duties that were really difficult and uh, 
have affected me even to today in a way that I really didn't realize till maybe the last six months. Yeah. Uh, so that it was neat that those resources were there at that time, but I never, uh, I never took advantage of any of it at the time. I just, you know, a young guy figured, oh, I'll be good. You know, I can gut through it, and I didn't realize the months worth of nightmares that I was having. Uh, you know, after that were manifestations of you know, PTSD. Um, and I actually, I I was diagnosed with PTSD about 18 months ago, but I was never diagnosed while I was in uniform. I was diagnosed by the VA and it's, uh, on you because I, I really thought during my career that, uh, I just had some mental health issues that were unrelated. And as I went deeper and deeper into therapy, I find more and more things are connecting back to this event and some of the stressors that I dealt with, you know, in, in the execution of those duties. And, and, uh, so it's interesting. Uh, and so I've kind of really started focusing more on therapy on how to deal with those things. So yeah, life changing event for me, big time. Uh, and you know, I, I, yeah, it was, uh, it was the hardest, hardest period of my career by, by, leaps and bounds harder than anything I have ever dealt with. And, uh, some of the most traumatic things in my life, you know, when they were bringing his casket off the, you know, the transport plane and stuff like that, that was, you know, really, really difficult. And I was fortunate my grandmother who had passed a number of years ago, she was still alive at the time. And she was very, very, uh, instrumental in helping me work through a lot of that at that time. And, uh, it's funny you talk about, I know we've talked about a lot of things, but haven't talked as much about music, which I think that's what makes this podcast awesome is it's so many different topics. But yeah, uh, well, I had a lot of trouble understanding, uh, like his family, he was, his family was Catholic and they had an open casket kind of funeral in a 24 hour wake at the funeral home where a bunch of us, you know, stood vigil with her, with his remains. Yeah, I noticed that growing up uh, Catholic that not a lot of people um, from different Protestant Christianity um, <laughs> religions and things aren't used to the morbidity of yeah. what a Catholic wake is. And for anybody yep. who's listening, you, you the ritual is you you arrive. Um, well, you don't arrive. You have the the body is in a room, and everything is kind of kind of gaudy i would say make it a little lighthearted. there's usually like faux gold vases and flowers and shit everywhere and the person well they're not the person anymore it's the body it's in the casket and it always doesn't look anything like they you know i've had some uh, close friends die from overdoses and things like that and it's it's very very bizarre i think and and uh it's certainly morbid but you sit there with the family and and i had there for like 24 hours and you 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 talk to each other and yeah it's, uh, it's funny. I know Greg wrote a little bit about that on uh, what is I can't remember which track is off Hello Exile when it's talking about Irish wakes. <laughs> yeah, there was a. Uh, uh, it's the last song um, called Farewell it, Youth. It, I think the interesting thing, like for me, so much of life is like a quest for knowledge. So I didn't understand why do why do we do this? Why why these? And so. I took a class in grad school like a year or so later and it was on pop culture. I'm like, sweet. I'll write about Beatles or something. Yeah. No, it wasn't. Uh, it was like your, your stuff, your stuffy history professor with a comb overs version of like, uh, that, uh, like pop sterile, culture. Like so I, <laughs> nerdy, uh, <laughs> un-nuanced. So, yeah. 
and I so I ended up writing about ritualistic death practices in the United States and where our American funeral traditions come from. That and I learned so an immense amount. Jesus Christ! It wow. was. I'll have to share it with you, man. I wrote a 30-page paper on it. It was really – actually, I learned a ton, and it helped me kind of come to terms with why were we doing these things, why you know, why do we show these bodies, and why do – and at the time, like, I struggled so much with it, and I remember – my grandmother just saying, honey, you know, this is, she explained to me, you know, why her family did that. And she said, and when I die, I will have an open casket. Yeah. And I, I remember pulling up at the funeral home with my parents and I had the honor of like, my life was delivering the eulogy for both of my grandmothers. And, uh, I remember pulling up to the funeral home, home with my mom and dad and, uh, we were going to go in and do the viewing and the funeral and all that. And I was so, and I didn't realize at the time, but this was kind of the manifestations of that post-traumatic stress disorder, just with dealing and not wanting to deal with funerals. And I had been on like a big time avoidance kind of thing with it for years where I had a coworker died and I just wasn't, wasn't going to do it. Couldn't do it. Um, but of course it's my grandmother. What are you going to do? And so we pull up and I was just really, really, nervous and anxious about having to go in there and see her like that. And, uh, so, uh, my grandmother's name was Mary and well, uh, let it be came on the radio. And isn't it let it be where he talks about mother Mary came to me in the first couple of sentences or. I think so. And I'm like, Whoa, talk about it. And these mother Mary comes and speaking words of wisdom, let it be kind of thing. And I, and I just felt like it was kind of talking to me, like, you know, her name's mentioned in the lyric of a song as I'm pulling up to a funeral home. And I'm like, all right, I can do this. And oddly enough, like I, she had died from lung cancer and she just was a really vibrant and robust woman. And then by the time the cancer took her, I mean, she just was a shell of her former self. And I actually found it somewhat comforting seeing her at the viewing because she looked more at peace than I had seen her look in a long time. Yeah. So I, I guess at that time I kind of understood what she was trying to explain to me years before. So totally life lessons, my friend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And another synchronous, <laughs> uh, synchronicitous event with the, with the, with music tied to it. But yeah, that is, uh, yeah. I, I always found it or as I'm getting older, I'm starting to think of death a lot differently. Um, I've would like to think that I've come to terms with the, my own mortality when I was younger. I don't think anybody can really say that fully, but I, uh, I don't necessarily fear death as much, but now I'm starting to see with the death of my own grandparents and the death of my friends, uh, untimely deaths and some people that you see sick and, and, and go away that the stigmatization around yeah. something that is such a inevitable and constant part of our lives is, I think possibly maybe indicative of a, of a, a sick society that kind of wants to avoid it as we do here in America or yeah. um, the way that we approach palliative care even is just like the mm-hmm. ex- trying to extend someone's life while they're kind of barely alive, even though everybody knows you're going to die. Yeah. Like you can, I, I used to be really cynical and think, well, it was just cause they want to make money off of it, but I don't necessarily think that anymore. I think it's kind of just, we don't know what to do and we're not necessarily equipped um, with the tools to be able to handle it because of the lack of religion in our lives, which could be, I think is probably Mm -hmm. a good thing. Uh, but also just societally, we don't have a a ritual in place that we can all, uh, um, 
kind of cling on to for that. And that's an extremely difficult thing to navigate. And that's where, like, talking through all this stuff, you know, where I found that music has been so profound for me, just latching on to lyrics and things like that, you know. And uh, I, when my grandmother had died and I had to drive back uh, for a funeral, I was, I was stationed in Omaha at the time, and that's where I think I had met you at a show in Lincoln or wherever. I think I saw you guys a million times there. But, yeah, uh, it was with Tiny Moving Parts, I think, when we did that. I remember that. In yep. between uh, yep. uh, one of the riot fests, let's go. Cool. Yeah, and I had seen you guys before that one time too. At uh, well, it was the tour with Broadway Calls, but you played a show with Off with Their Heads. I think that was the first time I had seen you okay. guys. Okay, yeah, yeah, hell yeah, yeah. But I, at the time, I was kind of uh, listening to a band. Uh, I I had stumbled on a song called "Rivers and Roads" by a band called uh, The Head and the Heart. And this song is just incredible. And I remember running across this song and it, you know, when you drive from Omaha to Illinois, you know, you're caught crossing rivers and roads, you know, to kind of get to there. And I, one of the lyrics says rivers and roads until I meet you. And, and it, she just, the woman's like singing this over and over. And I just like, just, it's hard for me, you know, when I think back on like music and what it means to me, you know, in different aspects of my life and not, I, it's so hard for me to understand how music isn't as important as, as it is to me with other people. And I, <laughs> Tell me about it, it, it's, exactly. Yeah. So, and so I can't, I can't, you know, I'm a, obviously a, a massive Menzingers fan and uh, I had, got to Korea in the spring of 2012. Uh, so what, when did On the Impossible Pass come out in June or February of 12, uh, didn't yeah, it? February 22nd or 21st. Well, and I, and I got to Korea in April, a couple months afterwards, and I kind of stumbled. I, I used to read a blog. Um, I was going to say, I it's pretty fucking crazy was. that the guy on his way to Korea would have been able to find On the Impossible Past at that time that when it came out. That's, that's, that's wild. It was a few months after the fact, and I had, I had, um, I used, uh, there was a blog that I used to read, and they had just, for, given the album just like incredible kudos and i'm like well i really need to listen to this you know and i and i know i mentioned i'm a punk snob so <laughs> like my my band with the small and i'm like this is pretty cool and i uh listened to it a couple more times and then just i really started to connect a lot with the album and I, that's funny like one of my memories uh i remember uh Jeez, I can't even remember which song it is, but where it's Walk Home C, a single C and double. Yeah, that song's <laughs> That's uh, one of your lyrics. Yeah, it? that song is called uh, Sculptors and Vandals, and that was actually something that a friend of mine, his name's Keith Yosko, uh, he played drums in The Holy Mess, yeah. and he, uh, uh, he yeah. him and his wife yeah. just had a beautiful baby, and they live out in the Poconos, and I, he's one of those people, you know how you have those people cached in your, in your mind where you think about um, yeah. before you do something uh, artfully, or, or maybe you're going to make a decision, you think, like, wonder what they would think of it, and he's one of those people for me. And uh, we were talking about relationships and, and, and joking about shit. And he texted me that that line. He said, he said I think he said, welcome single C and double, am I right? And I was like, damn, put that one in my notebook immediately. And that was, uh, that was the, where that lyric came from. Get that in. Yeah. It's funny, man. I, would, I, I had 
like my, you know, my iPod or whatever I had then at that time, just on blast all the time. I had headphones everywhere I was at. And, it, and part of it was just where I was at mentally that I needed to like hear music and not hear everything around me for some reason. Yeah. And I remember just walk, walking back from the bar and I was leaving single <laughs> by choice. I was a married man and I was sticking with my vows, but that lyric just stuck with me a lot. And it's funny, I, I, I'm sitting here looking at my MacBook screen and I have like lyrics that I keep and, and a couple of inspirational quotes on my, on my desktop that they're in front of me when I'm working all day, every day. And just as I'm going throughout my day or whatever, uh, you know, I'll kind of think about these lyrics and, and different things kind of almost like a guide in light. And it's, it's interesting. I, and I, I feel like your guys' albums in particular for me, and, and I know you and I are about 10 years apart, but for whatever reason, like maybe I'm like, a, I have a little arrested development going on because I feel like the, the records like almost, I don't know, like follow these stages I'm going through in life. And so something you've talked about on the podcast, well, I stopped drinking about six months ago. Oh, how's it going and, for you, man? Uh, it's well i would i sh- i shouldn't say i stopped i have significantly decreased my intake significantly sure yeah and that's um, also one of the and, worst questions i think you could ask somebody's like how's that going for you as if it's not one of the most well, like weighted things in the world you know you could be like it fucking it, it sucks <laughs> or you could be like it's great yeah sir and i and i think when you and nick were talking about that a couple months ago or whenever that that one came out it resonated a lot with me because of what you guys had to say and i know uh you know i didn't realize that i was drinking a lot you know uh i you know i drink a couple of drinks a day every day for like 20 some odd years yeah and my doctor's like that's a lot i'm like really <laughs> i'm like cuz i don't get drunk every night so it's but it was starting to have some pretty significant ramifications on my health. Yeah. And so I, uh, I guess when the album came out, I was about, you know, or when, when, uh, hello exile came out, I was about eight weeks into like not drinking. And it, yeah. for the first few months I didn't have any, anything to drink. And so, you know, I hear this song, I can't stop drinking. And I'm like, what the fuck, man? Like <laughs> how do you size these but the fact was, is I was stopping drinking. I was just struggling to figure out like my place in the world with yeah, that. Man, you know, I can't help but think so that they, uh, coinc- it coincides with your choice to uh, take the reins on your emotional and psychological well-being. You know, you said you started the psychotherapy and making these decisions to make yourself better. Uh, something very similar <laughs> happened to me. I had, I had gone to psychotherapy and had some. Um, Issues when I was younger that I've talked about on some other podcasts before and then ignored them for 10 years or whatever and then uh, started to work on them again right at the coinciding of us recording that record. So we finished recording Hello Exile. I took this moment and was like, all right, I got to I gotta get a grasp on this shit. So my friend uh, who I already mentioned once in the podcast, funny enough, Roger took a pact together where we would stop drinking and uh, that also coincided with me really hammering home uh, almost a weekly psychotherapy um, session. That's trying to make it sound clinical. I started to go see a psychologist again. Yeah. And uh, yeah. that really led to a lot of confrontations of the problems that I didn't want to deal with. You know, So it was easy in that I wasn't hung over anymore and I wasn't using the alcohol as a crutch, but it, you kind of get... Mm-hmm hit in the face with the fucking uh, shit that's been staring you down the entire time, which you might 
for you and for me and possibly that it was causing you to drink so much in the first place. And uh, it really reevaluating your relationship with alcohol, I think, is something that um, a lot of the people in music and a lot of the people uh, in my life have done and, and need to do and will do. And, you know, it's a. And I, I never realized story. it is. And I, I never realized how unhealthy, you know, my relationship was. And like, uh, you know, I just, I grew up in a household where, you know, my dad walked in the house, beer in hand, you know, went back to the, the bathroom and smoked a bowl with my mom or whatever and came out and he was ready to start his evening kind of thing. Yeah. And I mean, my dad was one of the guys, like he's at your high school baseball game and he's got a cooler full of beer in the car and he's walking out there and like chugging a tall boy you know in between innings and that was what i was raised in and then i go in the military where it's a pretty big drinking culture you know and alcohol is associated with just everything um but I, i was you know equally bad where i was a home drinker and you know like come home from work and you know i'm gonna pour four fingers full of whiskey in this glass and i'm gonna drink this down because it tastes really good and then you know that kind of thing and i didn't realize like you know my my capacity to drink like i could go out you know with friends and i met friends for drinks one time here and i could go out and drink 14 15 pints of guinness and come home sober you know and i just thought that they were weak and I was just hardcore or whatever. And I didn't realize that, well, Hey, maybe I've been abusing my body for a lot of years. So, uh, maybe my body has built its own natural reaction to prevent me from getting too drunk because I've done it so many times. I've actually adapted. Yeah, man. Yeah, dude, it's crazy. When you started to break down the numbers and realize like, if you actually are, at least for me, when I was actually honest with myself with how much drinking I was doing, Instead of like what you would tell the doctor and look at it and be like, holy shit, I fall within like the 98th percentile of, of, yeah. of people drinking um, or, or less or, you know, maybe a little less than that. Holy shit. Like that's not good for anybody involved <laughs> potentially. No. And I, and for me, ultimately like health wise, the biggest ramification has just been the unneeded calories and weight gain that is, you know, leads to other things and of especially course got to understand what that environment's like in the military i mean in the air force you take a physical fitness test every six months and they measure your waist and if your waist measures over a certain measurement you fail automatically and that's a kiss of death in the the air force at least your career is over yeah yeah your career is over so like so i was always i always had the throttle pulled back kind of thing you know like uh no i'm I don't need that extra slice of pizza or, Hey, one beer is good for the evening or whatever. And then when I retired, I'm like, Oh yeah. You know what I mean? And so my first year out of, and so, because I couldn't find my way to the gym and, and I just stopped limiting myself on, you know, food and beverages and had a pretty, pretty big impact on my health in just the span of a year. So, but, uh, yeah, that's the, the ugly side of all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, sure. It's, uh, it's really glad to hear that, uh, you know, grabbing that shit by the horns. That's, uh, one thing that I've found has been the biggest positive change in my life forever is just reevaluating my relationship with alcohol and uh, really just trying to move forward in a positive way and just be mindful of that shit. There's no cure-all. I search for cure-alls all the time. I love looking at, uh, you said you keep some lyrics and inspirational quotes handy while you're working on shit. I do the same thing. I keep a copy of uh, um, Marcus Aurelius' uh, Meditations on my nightstand or in my nightstand. And some, um, you know, there's some songs that I go back to over and over and over again to try to get through 
the things that are hard and through the day. And those are great frameworks and those remind yeah. you of the important things. But in the end, I feel like there's not really an easy fix to any of this shit. You just have to kind of dig down and uh, uh, confront the things that you don't want to confront at all. And then it's always fucking better, man. It's like when you have to uh, 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 get in a fight with a family member or maybe if you've ever had to, you know, you fire somebody <laughs> or if you have to get fired, the, the conversation, the dread of the conversation is always twice as bad as the actual conversation. So I think that that kind of uh, works yeah. as well towards um, working on yourself. Yeah, and I, it's interesting. I, uh, I, I don't know. Did I tell you I, I administrate and I started like a Facebook page or group for face to face about I don't know six or seven years ago, and this page over the years there's like five thousand members, um, and it's become like a really neat community. Yeah, that's a people. huge community. Like, I flew out. This and and it's just like we've worked really hard to make sure that people are treating one another with respect and things like that. And it's crazy. Like I, uh, that's been a really big thing for me is like coming out of the military and having more financial freedom than I had. I've been able to travel a lot more, and so I have flown out for a lot of shows. You know, all over the U.S. over the last year or so, or a couple of years since I've been retired. And I got to face to face played three nights. Uh, at a place called the Subterranean in Chicago last February, Sub- and just yeah. a really great many punk many rock days club. and nights at the Subterranean <laughs> in Chicago. <laughs> pretty cool little yeah. venue, pretty cool, and, and that that neighborhood's awesome. And yeah. like I got to go out there, and I, I'm meeting these people that I've been friends with on social media, pure social media friends that I've connected with through this shared love of a band, uh, and. It's been incredible that I've I've got to do those kind of things and connect with people. Um, I was their face faces in the process of rehearsing and they're getting ready to go into the studio and they're going to record their tenth album next month. And I was out seeing my folks in California last week and I I got to go in and hang out in the rehearsal space with the guys and which. I don't know how you guys like treat those kind of events when you guys are working together, but like they're like a tribe and people don't come to their, like when they're rehearsing to write an album. Sure. So getting an invite, you know, that's like almost a sacred place or it is a sacred place. So like when they extended that invitation to me, of course I'm going to take them up on it, but like, getting to go hang out for a few hours with them, watching the, that creative process, like, like those kind of things, seeing those kind of things are just incredible that, you know, you think you've done it all and seen it all, but just, uh, it was, it was amazing. And, and being invited into their, their little tribe like that. And I'm close with these guys. I've been backstage with them a million times, but that's, that's a whole different level, you know, yeah, dude, when, when you're in that. So that's amazing. It's it seems cool. like, you've, uh, yeah, man, you've, you've, you've had an incredible journey. And uh, you've uh, worked at it towards uh, towards where you're going, and brought that to you, and that's that's fucking awesome, man. And I, I really want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast with me, um, and sharing where you've gone so far. And I'd be looking to have you uh, come back and talk to me again if you're done with that. That'd be awesome. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if you ever get on the historical knock with the guys, I can. <laughs> I, That's I can what I'm gonna do, and I need that. to get you on here to talk about it. We have this idea uh, with history forgot with Tom and Scott. I was gonna have Scott on and Bobby on and try yeah. to have them both on at one time, and that would be so fucking sick to have you come on and talk to us about history. I uh, absolutely I would love that shit, that. and I'm really uh, excited to use this format to kind of get into the um, non-musical facets of the world and kind of like stoke the curiosity that it really inspires the music itself anyway so i think that'd be pretty great um, i guess uh i might wrap it up there it's cool with you what uh how, how can you join the facebook group if you're uh uh, uh into the face to face like that yeah uh you can go- just google face to face fans and collectors connection right oh, there yeah. on uh facebook i also created one for you guys about five or six years ago that has about 1100 people. oh no shit I, that's and uh <laughs> Yeah, dead serious, man. I've been trying to cultivate, like, uh, I think the difference and something I've seen with you guys, and I mentioned this to my wife when I saw you guys back in November here in Denver, was your your shows get bigger every time and younger, which is good because you're, you know, I mean, there's younger and younger people coming to your shows, which yeah. I think is Not really exciting. Especially in Denver, but, that's happened. We've noticed. And I, but I think the difference, like, is you take an older punk band like Face to Face, most people my age, you know, are, you know, they're kind of doing the Facebook thing. I think the younger people are kind of on something different. So I haven't had as much success cultivating kind of community there. But uh, I think it, I'd like to do something similar where you can put like minded people together that can support one another, whether it's couch surfing for the night at a show or helping somebody get it. We had one guy that, uh, was deployed to Afghanistan and wanted a hoodie, so I bought him a hoodie and sent it to him. Oh, you no know, shit. I mean, it's, That's it's amazing. Cool. Thank you. If, uh, if I'm sure that a lot of the people like listening to this uh, will probably like my band as well. <laughs> how could they? Uh, how could they find that Facebook group? It's the Menzingers fan page, man. Amazing. No, no level of no no level of creativity oh, there. Yeah. But, I can't wait to creep uh, on it sometime. Make a new Facebook. Knock stuff. Go in. <laughs> corner of the market yeah <laughs> but yeah, yeah it's good stuff man oh, yeah man and jack i thank you so much for coming on i think we'll uh we'll leave it there and i can't wait to talk to you again my friend yeah oh. absolutely hopefully you guys get out here soon and we will have to uh have a, a cup of coffee or something oh fuck yeah we'll be back you there yep Biggest thanks to Jack for coming on to the show. That was a great conversation, and I enjoyed it so goddamn much. I cannot wait to talk to him again. We'll see you guys soon. We're heading to Australia in a week. Bye. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee 
that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to something about the Beatles, now on Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts.